Let's go ahead and pray to the Lord. Father, thank you for loving us so generously through your Son, Jesus Christ. As we open up your word to look at the truths that are so familiar to most of us, we ask that you would convict us and encourage us in new ways. Cause us to be more like your son, we pray. We ask these things in his name alone. Amen. Well, good morning, church. All right, there's at least one here. Good morning, church. Good morning. Well, praise the Lord. Open up your Bibles to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. You know, as I was uh, writing my transcript uh, this week, like I usually do, I just was writing, every transcript begins with, good morning, church. Please open up your Bibles to uh, whatever passage we're studying. And it just like dawned on me that, man, it is so good to say these words to the congregation. Good morning, open up your Bibles to First John chapter 4, and we will look at his word. I mean, each week, personally, I long to be here to worship Christ, to encourage one another, to, to just be encouraged by you, to learn and to hear from Christ uh, through his word. And I hope that you share the same attitude uh, as you come here every single week. But have how many of you heard it said about the church? You know, churches are so messed up. I don't think I'll ever set my foot in a church again. Or you oftentimes hear of someone saying, you know, churches are just full of hypocrites. Why would you want to attend one? Usually said by someone who's seen some inconsistencies between what Christians profess and, and what they actually do in practice. Or how about this statement? I have a relationship with God and I don't need a church to practice my religion. In fact, it's a lot easier without a church. And usually said by the individual who, who can't work through a broken relationship with someone, and so he would just rather quit the church, if you can do that. Or what about this popular one? You know what, I love Jesus, I just don't love the church. You know, how do you respond to these statements? Maybe you've uttered the same statements or came very close to saying them because you too experienced some pain from others in the past. Many of us here thought, I'm sure, that the Christian life would be a lot easier if we just listened to the sermon online and we just wouldn't have to deal with, with people around us. I'm convinced that part of the reason why people are not coming back to church after COVID is because they basically say, you know what, I just don't get offended sitting on my couch watching my pastor speak from a distance. How do you help yourself in this situation? I know that many out there beyond these walls, even some real Christians, um, they're not gathering together this morning with their local bodies because of some previous experience, some terrible situation that happened to 
them in the past. I also know of some who are with their churches and maybe you are here with this local body this morning because you know it is, quote unquote, the right thing to do. Like, how can a Christian miss church? I mean, we have to go to church, so it's the right thing to do. But you don't want anyone to know you. You don't allow anyone to get to know you. And you don't go out of your way to get to know other people because you don't want to get hurt again. And then there are those who love the church despite the fact that they have been sinned against and they sin against others, and yet they could still come. They still have the encouragement to come to fellowship together with others. Why? Because they know that Christ, through his spirit, ministers to them through his word and through one another here every time we gather. You know, as we begin this new series this morning, I want to remind you just one straight-up fact is that local churches can be very messed-up images of the body of Christ. And, and that's not something unusual. They can sometimes be hypocritical, inconsistent, hurtful. At times, the church can split into fragments. And... Friends, no church is immune to this happening to them because church is filled with sinners. And whenever there's sinners and sin involved, there are fractions, there are disputes, there are hurt feelings, there's even hypocrisy, all of that. This is just what we bring to the table. If you find a church that is perfect, the minute you step your foot into it, it ceases to be perfect because we all bring our baggage to it. But, but we're not done yet here because the admission that the local church, listen friends, the admission that the local church is messed up does nothing, absolutely nothing to undo the teaching of scripture that the church is central to God displaying his glory to the world he created. We can acknowledge one thing. Yes, there's a lot of sin in the church. And oftentimes churches are messed up and churches are broken, but it does nothing to undo this one central truth. The church is central to God's plan to display the gospel of Christ and to equip Christians to live to glorify him. The church is the bride of Christ for whom Christ spilled his blood. You are here, I trust, because of Christ who spilled his blood for you, regenerated you, added you to his body, and now compels you to become part of the local church. Matthew 16 says, Christ speaking to his disciples, specifically to Peter, and he says, listen, I will build my church, my church, and I will build it. Colossians chapter one. Ephesians chapter five highlights the fact that Jesus, as the builder and architect, he is the head of the church. Ephesians chapter one, verse 22 and 23, listen, 
It says this, Paul writes, and he says, and he, God, put all things in subjection under Christ, his feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and all. The church is the means by which Christ is filling the universe with his glory. And you may doubt that for a minute, because when you look at some churches, you may even come here and you look around and he says, ah, I don't know about that. But the church is how he fills the world with his glory through repentance. And by adding more and more people into his kingdom, there is absolutely no other institution that has the promise or the power that it will be the salt and it will be the light to the world, even though we turn around and we readily acknowledge that we so often fail to be the light and we so often fail to be the salt. But friends, get this one thing straight. Jesus is passionate about his church. And if our Lord is passionate about his church, we must be passionate about the church. You you cannot sincerely claim to love Jesus and not love the church. They, they, they don't go together. The failing of the church is not a biblical reason to abandon the church. Rather, it is a call to run to Christ and to be reminded again and again of the gospel, to be strengthened and renewed that we may biblically deal with sin as we look to encourage one another just a call for us to reflect on the gospel all the more. The New Testament describes the local body as an interdependent body or a family or a temple or a building made up of men and women who have believed the gospel by repenting of sin and trusting in Christ. Jesus, as I said, he's the architect of the church and he did not leave us without instructions on how we ought to relate he knows we are sinners. He knows we are full of sin. This is, this is a struggle that will be unending until we meet him in glory. But he gives us instructions. And these instructions are oftentimes found through this phrase that is often repeated in the New Testament, one another, one another. This is how you relate to one another and never are we called in scripture to abandon, to leave, to go find another place, another space. We are called to press into one another and love one another, serve one another, forgive one another, bear one another's burdens, pray for one another, confess our sins to one another. This is what scripture calls us to do. This word is often, or this phrase is repeated over 100 times in the New Testament. Approximately 59 of these occurrences are specific commands that teach us how and how not to relate to one another. And this morning we begin this series of one another by looking at what I would call the foundational command for the rest of these one another's, and that is love one another. Church, love one another. All the other one another's, they're kind of flow out of this one, your love. So in short, what is our responsibility to one another this morning? John's answer is love. 
love. If you're there, John, 1 John chapter 4, I want to invite you to begin reading with me in verse 7. We'll read through verse 14. John writes, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. We have seen and testify that the father has sent the son to be the savior of the world. Our focus, focus this morning will be verses 7 through 12. And as we look at these verses, just the overall theme that I want us to keep in mind as, as, as we look at each one, and, and that is this, our connection to Jesus through new birth and his abiding in us enables and causes us to love one another. If we are here, more than likely, we are connected to Christ through new birth and Christ abides in us. His love abides in us. And as a result, it enables and causes, compels, inspires us to love one another. So in turn, it's very simple. If we don't love one another, then somewhere there, this connection, this understanding of God's love for us that was displayed on the cross is missing. We have failed to meditate on the gospel because this is the central thrust of the, of the entire passage that Peter brings to confront us and to compel us and to encourage and to exhort us, beloved friends, look at one another and love one another. So John focuses here on three spiritual truths that urge and motivate us to love one another. And I want us to look at them briefly. One, two, and three. First one is, he says, love one another since you are born of God. Love one another since you are born of God. The second one is love one another since you are loved by God. And he will conclude with the third statement, love one another since you are indwelt by God. First, he says, as, as we reflect on the gospel, we ought to love one another since something radically um, majestic and awesome took place in our lives. And that is this love one another since we are born of God. And he basically in verses seven and eight gives us two exhortation. He says, loving others gives evidence that you are born of God and loving others gives evidence that you are, that you know God, born of God and know God. Church, this is the foundation for everything that will be taught here this morning. First, he gives us a command. He gives us an exhortation. And then he immediately follows that up with an explanation. Let me explain to you, beloved, why you ought, why you should, why you can love God. You know, usually when we are told to do something, 
uh, in this case, to love, we immediately ask the question, why? Why are you telling me what to do? Why should I love? Or maybe the question, if we truly understand what, what this command is telling us, right, to do, what John is asking us to do, love one another, um, we, we come to this passage and, and we ask, how in the world will we be able to do this? How is this even possible? But because the kind of love John is describing here, it's not a romantic or, or emotional type of love. He's not calling us to, you know what, guys, after church, just gather around for a group hug. Even though sometimes that would be great. Probably do that every once in a while. But love is a word that involves your emotion, but more than this, this agape love that he's talking about, agape one another, love one another, is this unconditional love, a love that seeks the highest good for the one who is loved. Love one another, the one who is loving that one another seeks his good, seeks her good, even at his own expense. How can then selfish sinners love like this? Well, John here argues the point and he says, beloved of God, love one another because you are born of God. And if you are born of God, his love is in you since God is love. Love one another for, here's the explanation. The reason here, love is from God. The source of all true love is God. Friends, we need to remember that love does not begin with us. Love does not begin with us. It flows from God. It is his divine nature. If you have been radically born of God, then you have been given this new life, which is not yours to live by your own power and your ability. No, you have been born of God. You have the supernatural, he says, ability to do what only God does. Because God is love, he loves. And if you're born of God, then you have the same ability to do what God does, and that is to love others. And here's the biblical teaching that we call the doctrine of regeneration, being born of God. We oftentimes pray in our prayers for unbelievers for our friends and for our kids. And we say, Lord, regenerate them. Give them new birth. Make them new. This is what we're talking about. This is what we're praying for. And the Bible has a lot to say on this topic because regeneration marks out believers. The new birth is what finally makes a Christian. This is the turning point. Jesus is charged to Nicodemus. Remember in, in John chapter three, he says, he comes in and starts flattering Jesus as if Jesus needed any flattery. And Jesus says, listen, you need to be, you must be born again. And later on in Titus chapter three, verse five, Paul writes that God saved us, not on the basis of our deeds, which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. New birth, like you are radically different. I love what John Piper says about this change. He says, the new birth is the imparting to you of divine life 
And an indispensable part of that life is love. God's nature is love. And then the new birth, that nature becomes part of who you are. When you are born again, God himself is imparted to you. You have the very God in you. You know, your children, they possess your DNA. So they look like you. They, in some ways, act like you, maybe even speak like you. They have the mannerisms like you. Why? Because your children, they have your nature. It's been passed to them genetically. And what John is saying is very similar that a very similar thing is true of us as believers. If God, as to his nature, is love, then everyone who is truly born of God partakes of his nature of love. Christians, your ability to love this morning doesn't come from you being super good or super experienced. You know, I just learned to put up with these, you know, troublemakers in the church. I've been in the church for 20 years, so I, I know what to expect already, and I'm, I'm just like, I learned this. That can be true, but your ability doesn't come from you. It comes from you being born again. It comes from God radically transforming your life. And at this point, I think we need to make another side point. It's important to remember why John, why this epistle, 1 John, was written to Christians he wrote so that they may know that they have eternal life, he writes in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. And one of the recurring tests or themes he presents is whether or not we love one another. He said, here's how you know that you're a believer. Here's how you know that you have God's seed abiding in you is look, think, consider, observe yourself. Do you have the ability to love? Do you love? other people around you because if you're born of God who is love and his love is in you then it stands to reason you will love but if you don't but if you don't this is a good time to consider why he doesn't want you to be deceived here if you have absolutely no love towards another person this kind of love this sacrificial love love that forgives love that is okay with being hurt for the benefit of another person. And he says, you need to consider whether you are in faith at all, whether you are a believer or not. This is that serious here. You may not be born of God. So this morning here, we need to test ourselves to, to be sure. Those who have the divine nature cannot help but love. This is the most important test of Christianity. Do you love someone who you would naturally not love, dislike? Do you have this disposition to tell the truth to another, not to provoke another, not to think evil of another, to bear another, to love another? Loving others gives evidence that you are born of God, but then at the very end, of verse 7, he says, not only are you born of God, you know God and knows God. Look at, look at verse 7, and knows God. It gives evidence that you know God. And, and we can't skip this over quickly because the word knows here, confess, 
of having an intimate relationship with God. It is more than just, you know, knowing mere facts, intellectual knowledge. To know God really means to be rightly related to him. Those who have been born of God also demonstrate in an ongoing habit of life that they know. Why do you love? It's because I know God. It's because I have a relationship with him. Look back with me. We're at 1 John 4. Look back at 3.1. 1 John 3.1. And John almost like just spills over with joy. And he says, see how great a love the Father has bestowed on us. That we would be called children of God and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. So this knowledge of God is tied to being adopted into his family and being a child of God. Are you born of God? Then you have this relationship with the Lord, don't you? You know him. You know his love. You've experienced it. And in verse 8, John here, he negatively restates what he already said in verse 7 with a major addition. And look at verse 8 here, back to 4, 8. He says, the one who does not love does not know God. The one who does not love, just so that you don't miss the point, negatively, if you don't love, then you don't know God. If your life is not characterized by God-like love towards others, then you don't know God. And by extension, you have not been born of God. Why? Because, verse 8, God is love. God is love. This is an amazing statement, friends. An amazing statement. Three times in John's writing, we read statements about God's nature. In the Gospel of John 4, 24, John says that God is spirit. This is who he is. We read earlier in chapter one of this epistle, verse five, John writes, God is love. And now in verse eight and later on in verse 16, John says, God is love. God is love. And note this, it's very important that these statements, they cannot be reversed. Uh, We cannot say that love is God. God equals love, so love equals God. We can't. Not all love is God-like love. We can say the tree is green, but green does not equal trees. Same exact kind of concept here. Love does not define God. Rather, God defines love. Contrary to the Beatles song, love is not all you need, actually. God's love is all you need. David Allen, in his commentary, he says, God defines love. God cannot fall in love. He is love. God cannot fall in love for the same reason water can't get wet. It is wet. God is love in eternal action. Love, friends, is not just an attribute of God. It is his very nature. C.H. Dodd, he wrote in his commentary on John, he says, to say God is love implies that all his activity is loving activity, even his judgment. If he creates, he creates in love. If he rules, he rules in love. If he judges, he judges in love. All that he does is to the expression of his nature, which is to love. Beloved, this is our God. 
Beloved, John writes, we are children of this God. By his very nature, perfect, sovereign over all, needing absolutely nothing, and yet he chooses to create human beings to love them. This kind of love can only be imitated by those who possess the very nature of God being born of him. So friend, are you born of God? Are you born of God? John's conclusion is, if you get this right, if you figure this out, you will love. And you can look and see, do you have this ability, do you have this desire to love? Then it's most likely because you are born of God. Do you personally and intimately know your God? And one of the ways to answer this question is to look at action, your action. And John encourages that. Look. Because you've been enabled by God's regenerative power to do just that. So the very first thing he wants us to see that we ought to love one another because we are born of God. But it's one thing to talk about love, right? It's altogether different to show this kind of love. I was speaking with my wife yesterday and said, telling her, you know, I'm just... This topic here is, is very challenging. Um, says, what topic? We're talking about love. Well, and she says, well, it's, uh, you're going to be talking about it, right? <laughs> you're going to be talking about it, right? In other words, it's, it's a lot easier to talk about it than, than, than to do it. And that's the challenge for us. God is not just talking about love. Friends, God is love. How do we know he is love? The very God who created men in his image for his glory, even when they rebelled against him and deserved eternal death, he chose to love them still and provide a way of salvation. Listen, Christian God, our God, the Christian God, is not a talking God only. He's an acting God. He does things. He demonstrates his love. He's a serving God. God became a man in the person of Jesus Christ, and by his self-humiliation, he paid for our sin, which brings us to the second point. Here is the, this is the pinnacle of everything we're talking about. Love one another since you are loved by God. Love one another since you are born of God, yes, but love one another since you are loved by God. And this is what John in verses 9 and 10 demonstrates to us that God proved his love to us by sending his son so that we may live. And God proved his love to us by sending his son so that he may die. That's what verses 9 and 10 are all about. Christians, we who are exhorted to love, we are already loved by God. We were just singing these truths. We celebrated this truth that we are loved by God. All we got to do is just reflect on communion. And this is the ground for the command to love one another. God is love. Amen? Amen. God shows his love. How? God proves his love for us in his son. In his son. By this, the love of God was manifested was manifested. You know, we don't use this language today. 
At least I don't, I don't know if you use this term, manifested. I, I don't go up to my wife and say, hey, sweetie, I want to manifest my love to you. I'm just going to go do dishes. That, that's not how I, I speak. We have other ways of communicating, but this is what God does. He says, listen, I am love. I am love, and I'm going to show you. I'm going to demonstrate you so that you get it. If all God does or did was, was talk about being love without proving it, we would have the grounds to doubt his love, wouldn't we? There would be times in our lives when we would question whether or not this God really truly cares and loves us. And, and maybe this is you right now, just struggling to see how God could love you and if you're loved by anyone here in this room even. Maybe you've been abandoned, maybe you've been betrayed or lied to, mistreated, abused, and you're sitting here this morning, you're doubting God's love for you. And John says this, friend, let me show you. Let me show you how God loves you. Let me show you his love. And remember John, John is just not some guy that's picked off the street to write first John. He says, let me show you God's love. No. John was there at the beginning. That's why he writes, he opens up and he says, listen, I've been there. Take it from me. If you're going to learn something about God's love, take it from me because I've been there. I, I've seen him. I've touched him. I, I heard him teach and speak. I've seen all the miracles that we studied over the past seven months. Take it from me. I know this love personally. Let me tell you something about his love. Listen up. This is God's love that God sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. Four things I want us to highlight just from this one phrase, God sent, God sent. God's love was initiated by God. He initiates his love. Think about it for a second. Who is the offending party in this animosity between God and man? Sinners. We, men, we are. Uh, who's supposed to come up to whom to ask for forgiveness? We. You know, we always do this as parents of multiple kids, you know, trying to find the rascal who stirred up the pot here in the family and who offended one another. And we're like, who offended who? Who said what to one another? And then we find the offender and we're like, you need to ask for forgiveness. Acknowledge your sin and ask for forgiveness, right? Isn't that what we do as parents? Part of our trouble is trying to figure out who did what. And, and yet it is God, the one being offended, who initiates reconciliation. We cause the problem, and he purposes a solution. God sent his only begotten son. God's love not only is initiated by him, but God's love is selfless. Listen, he didn't send another prophet he didn't send an angel. No, he sent his son. And in fact, his only begotten son. This is a unique title. It's one that focuses on Christ's unique relationship with the Father in heaven. It's used five times in the New Testament, all in reference to Jesus. And basically, he shares in the very nature of the Godhead in the way that no other created being shares. Jesus is the son of God who is divine. 
He belongs into the family of God. Our sin had gotten us into such trouble, church, that it required God and God himself to deliver us out of it. God sent his son from heaven because that is where he was before he came. And another great doctrine of incarnation. Before Christ was somewhere else, he came. He was sent by the Father to deal with our sin. He existed in eternity with his Father in loving communion through the Holy Spirit. Listen, our God was not lonely and in need of communion. No, he had perfect communion within the Trinity. The triune God has existed forever in a perfect loving communion and community. John 3.35, John reflects on it, or Jesus and says, the father loves the son. That's what Jesus says, my father, who's in, he loves the son. John 14.31, but so that the world may know that I love the father, I do exactly as the father commanded me. We have this unbroken relationship from eternity past. And yet God is love. And he proves his love by giving his son selfless love indeed. And and look at the next phrase. He sent his son into the world, into the world. God's love is sacrificial. It's sacrificial. I think we have a pretty neutral view of the world, unfortunately. We don't think of the world as as evil and as terrible, as bad. We, we sometimes befriend the world. I mean, John here says, do not love the world. The world is hostile. So, so when we read that the father sent his son into the world, it just doesn't pack the punch that, that I think it should. But this is a big deal. Remember, God did not send his son into the Garden of Eden. He sent his son into the world post-fall God is sending his son into the world where most of humanity is rejecting God's authority, where most of us, all of us are rejecting his authority. This world is ruled by the enemy. And so he's sending his son into the enemy territory. I was thinking what it would be like to send your son somewhere like North Korea as this well-known Christian, for instance, and the father calls his son and he says, son, I'm going to send you, or right now, to Afghanistan, or I'm going to send you to North Korea, where everybody knows about you and you will be rejected. Most of us will try to talk that father out of it. And although this example falls way short, way short, doesn't do justice to what the father did to his son by sending his son into the world, kind of gives us A little bit of that taste. God sent his son where he will be rejected more than any other prophet had ever been rejected. And yet God said, son, go. Why? So that we might live through him. God's love is purposeful. It's not haphazard. The enemy territory, this hostile world, it is full of dead men. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 says, and though you will dead in your trespasses and sins. That's us prior to Christ. Not only are men dead, they are enslaved by the devil. 1 Timothy 2.26 says, having um, 
if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of truth, having been held captive by him to do his will, by the enemy, by Satan. And not only are they enslaved by the devil, they are blinded by him. I mean, you're dead, you're enslaved, you're blinded. Ephesians chapter 4 says you are hardened, darkened. I mean, this is just about the description of an unbeliever. You're dead. And Jesus comes so that we may live. God wanted to share his eternal life with us because life is found in Christ alone. This very life that he shares can only be found in Christ. And friends, I just want to remind you and exhort you this morning that there is no life apart from Christ. There's no eternal life apart from Christ. John 4, 1 or 1, 4, in him was life. John 5, 26, for just as the father has life in himself, even so he gave the son also to have life in himself. John eleven twenty five, 25, I am the resurrection and the life. 14.6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. John 17.2, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. To live through him is to be born of God and to know God. It means to enjoy fellowship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It means to walk in light, to enjoy fellowship with one another, confess and receive forgiveness of sins, and to walk in obedience of his word. Beloved, this is the greatness of God's love for us. Verse 7 or verse 9. But verse 10 also says that God proved his love by sending his son so that he might die. Not only so that we may live, but that he, the very son, the only begotten son of God, might perish and die. God sent his son to satisfy his wrath. God's love is demonstrated really by its cost. Look at verse 10 says, and this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And how do we know that? He sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Here's another word we don't use often today, propitiation. What does it mean? I bet you never told your friend when you were coming home past your curfew, you know, I'm going to be late and my dad will be mad, so I better find a way to make propitiation. Propitiation. But I love the fact that this word is still being put in the modern translations of, of the Bible. Some, some translations are getting away from, from using terms that are just loaded with deep meaning that it just cannot be replaced with any other word. And here he says, the father sent his son to be the propitiation Propitiation. What is the meaning of this word? Well, this word here, it means to appease someone's wrath. Someone is very angry. And you need to do something in order to appease that wrath. In ancient Greek mythology, their gods were very uh, often angered by humans. So in order to appease them, they would offer sacrifices to these gods. And so 
the question that may come to our mind is, why would this God, why would our God, why would the true God need to be appeased? Why can he just do away with sin and, and forget about it? As so many wrongfully conclude today. You know, forgive without paying a price. And the question that we need to ask just for a second, and we will answer this question by asking the question, would a good judge release a criminal without a proper sentence? No. We always wait. When there's a mass murder or something, we always wait for that moment when the judge will pronounce a sentence. It says, guilty, and here's what you deserve. Why? Because there's a mechanism built in us, right? We're created in the image of God. We want justice. We want justice. And when God is just, or when an earthly just uh, judge is just, then we rejoice at that. Why would God, the ultimate judge, the only judge who judges righteously, why would he let go of sin? He can't. He can't. In this doctrine of propitiation, we see everything. We see God's wrath. We see God's justice. We see his mercy. We see his love. And we see his grace. Because we rebel against God, friends, and we sin. And sin in the scripture here it means to miss the mark, one of the definition. And then the other one is forget about the mark. I'm just going to step over and willfully transgress God's lie. And this is who we are. We cannot appease God. God is angry, John 3.36 says, he who believes in the Son has eternal life. He who does not believe does not have life, but the wrath of God remains on him. God is angry with us. And there's nothing that you and I can do in order to appease it. God will carry out his judgment. But then we come to passages like this where we read about his mercy. God is merciful to us, beloved. He is willing that we don't receive his wrath but we can't do anything to earn his forgiveness. So he's gracious and kind to us. He says, I'm gonna send his, my son so that he could pay the price for sin. He's gonna become a substitute. He's gonna satisfy my judgment, my justice through his death. Propitiation for our sins. You don't escape death, you become the sacrifice. And then this son, he resurrects from the dead, declaring to all, that this sacrifice of Jesus Christ is perfect. That's why we can read 2 Corinthians 5.21 and, and, and just rejoice at this statement. He made him, the Father made Jesus who knew no sin. There was no sin in him, but he made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So when someone asks you, hey, what is propitiation all about? You need to answer by saying, God gave his son. God gave himself in his son for our sins. God makes the first move. He loves us so that we could love one another. Church, this is love. This is love. If you're part of Christ's family, if you've been born and if you know God, it's because God initiated this relationship with you, not because you wanted it. You could do anything about it. The Spirit regenerated you, gave you faith to believe what the gospel declares to be true. God loves you. And friend, if today you begin to doubt God's love, 
You just need to go back to the cross. When the New Testament writers wanted to remind their recipients of God's love, they always brought the focus on the cross. It was always the Christ. It was always the cross. Don't question God's love. Believe it. Believe it. God loves you. But what does this mean for those of you who are struggling with sin and and doubt whether or not today you can still be accepted by God? Is his love everlasting? Does it endure or, or does it fluctuate depending on whether or not you and I, I don't know, measure up to a certain standard. Listen, if God loved you when you were dead in sin, if he loved you when you were rebelling against him, Christian, how can you believe the lie that God's love for you today is somehow tied to your performance? It's not about what you do and don't you do. You never got in because of your performance. You can never remain because of what you do. God's love for you at salvation was because he loved you. That's it. That's the only reason that the New Testament gives us. You know why he loved you? It's because he purposed to love you. Not because you loved him. That's what verse 10 says. But because he loved you. Are you motivated in your walk with Christ by guilt and fear of just undoing what Christ had done for you? If you could, you would have done it already. Even though, as John says, our life is no longer generally characterized by sin, we still sin. But be reminded this morning by the cross of Christ that God loves you. And since he loves you, you can go on loving one another. That is the only proper motivation. When someone sinned against you, you look at the cross and you ask, why is Jesus on the cross? because of my sin. Why am I now in his family? Well, it's because he forgave me. And so you can look at this dear brother and sister who just did that to you for whom Christ died and paid for their sin and you can extend them the same kind of grace and same kind of forgiveness, right? That you've been extended by Christ. Love one another because you are born. Love one another because you are loved. And verses 11 and 12 here, just briefly, love one another since you are indwelt by God. God's love for us causes us to love one another. And this is the point, verse 11, beloved. He starts out with beloved. I want you to remember you are loved by God. Beloved, reflect on the gospel, reflect on Christ. And then verse 11, beloved, if God so loved you, how did he love you? The so here points back to verse nine and 10. If God loved you this way, we also then ought to love one another. That is the obvious conclusion. If God loved you, then we ought, out of gospel gratitude and connection to the very source of love, God, love one another, he says. We read in Romans 5.5 that the love of God has been poured out into our hearts through his spirit. Since his love is in us, we ought to love. The, The word here in Greek means to be bound by love. It is our responsibility to love one another. 
We are bound to respond in love. We have an obligation, in other words, to love one another. But here's the problem. Man, some of us are hard to love. And you've been maybe sitting here and thinking, so do you mean to tell me that I have to love him? That I have to love her? I don't like that this guy's always late. How do I love this person when I'm punctual and I need to be on time all the time and I get mad at those who show up late to, I don't know, choir practice. We don't have choir practice. I can pick on that. Or I don't like that she's so loud. Or I don't like that he's full of himself and only seeking his own or so I interpret it. I don't like her character. We're so different in this body. We find so many reasons not to love and many of which are legit. We do need to change. People need to come on time, for instance. And so often, because of these things, we're just tempted to bail on one another. So how do we do it? How do we do it? When you see this guy, when you're irritated by this guy or this gal, what do you do? Like, tell me what to do. Give me the method. And John's method is, go back to verse 11. Tim, God so loved you. How did he love you? Nine and 10. If God so loved us. These words, they keep us grounded in the gospel and in his love. They keep us from seeking and and seeing ourselves as victims. Friends, this this was us before we were born again. Before we knew the Lord. Now, because of Christ dwelling in us, we must be all about him and others. What does it really mean to love one another? Well, we just need to go back and reflect on 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I don't think there's a greater passage written in the New Testament or anywhere else in all of literature outside of Scripture that really describes the quality of God's love for us. Quality of agape love. Church, When we love one another this way, we are simply experiencing and enjoying who we are in Christ. And the second thought in verse 12, God's love is perfected when we love one another. Verse 12 here, look at this. No one has seen God at any time. It just takes this unexpected turn. It seems like it's disconnected from what came before. All of a sudden, he's talking about God, seeing him, but... but, Track with John here. John says, no person has seen God up close and personal in all of his glory, in all of his majesty, because if you do, you die. But John's thought takes this beautiful turn here. No one has seen God in his essence, but we can see God through the lives of those who demonstrate his love to others. No one has seen God at any time. But if we love one another, God is seen in us. God abides in us. God dwells us and he's visible. That's why we can love. Love one another because you're indwelled by God. And all of a sudden, God becomes visible. And his love is perfected. When we love, we prove that God dwells in us and his love is brought to completion. Really what that word perfected. His love reaches its intended goal. God intends for, to pour his love into us so that that love can flow through us to others. We're just channels. We're channels of God's love. 
And his love reaches the perfected or the intended goal, which is so that we may love others. And in in the end here, just one thought. I, I came across this post that one pastor said. He says, the only perfect church is the heavenly assembly. And this doesn't meet at 10.30 a.m. each Sunday, a short drive from your home. So, until you're called to join the throng around God's throne, you're called to belong to a church in which others will get things wrong, and so will you. So love Jesus, friends, and love others by focusing on Christ. And just seeing your daily need for Jesus and his daily love for you that flows out of the gospel. Father, we thank you for instructing us, for loving us in Christ. May we overflow with this love towards one another. May this place, may this body be a body that's known to accept and to welcome and to treasure one another because we are accepted and welcomed and treasured by Christ. Lord, may we just be extensions of his his body, of Christ's very attitude. Oh, Lord, instruct us, Lord, as we continue to study these things. Inspire us to love you more as we reflect on the gospel. In Christ's name we pray, amen.